A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the first Sunday of Advent when we read again of God's people waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Advent is a season of waiting and preparation to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. This time of waiting is also a time for us to be working for peace among the nations and peace with each other. It is a time for us to change our priorities as we walk in the light that God gives us. As a part of our Advent waiting, we celebrate Christ's coming by making an Advent wreath and lighting its candle, candles to remind us of the hope Christ brings to the world. The round shape of the wreath reminds us of the unbroken love of God. The green branches speak of new life, and the candles proclaim the light that came into the world with Jesus Christ. Uh, today we light the first candle. The flickering of the flame reminds us that our waiting is a time of both contemplation and action. So as we seek to light the candle, join me in this prayer. It's in your program, and your parts are in bold. Dear God, through your spirit, you spoke to the prophets, and the people prayed and waited for a Messiah to come. Through your spirit, you spoke to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, and they responded and waited for their child to be born. Through your spirit, speak to each of us that we may feel your presence and know your will in our Advent waiting this year. Amen. Today's New Testament teaching text, excuse me, I'll use this. Okay. Um, 
Today's New Testament teaching text is Luke 1, 5 through 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak, until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Barb. Uh, Welcome. My name is Matt. If you are visiting, there are a lot of things that are different this Sunday than usual. Uh, We are using programs, which are lovely. There's no screens. We're going low-tech Advent, okay? So we have those. It's a little bit different than usual. We have a Christmas tree. That's not usual. Um, But hopefully, 
you still feel the welcome of Christ in this place, um, and that will remain as usual each week. My name is Matt. I serve as the pastor here. And, you know, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. Lights, decorations. Shepard, my son, said he also loves Christmas. Uh, Hot chocolate, comfy or ugly sweaters, parties and festivities and pie. Come on. Not to mention... As Christians, the season is, you know, kind of full of meaning with the whole birth of Christ thing. But the Christian liturgical calendar, which is how the church has tried to do Jesus-centered time, basing our yearly rhythms on the story of Jesus, the liturgical calendar doesn't begin with Christmas. The calendar is all about Jesus, but it doesn't begin at the beginning of Jesus. It doesn't begin at the birth of Jesus. Isn't that a little bit strange? To me, that's a little bit strange. Why not just begin on Jesus? Why these four Sundays before? Why does it begin with this season of Advent? Which is Latin for arrival or coming But why begin before the beginning? Some of you might be familiar with this saying, you know, keep Christ in Christmas. Or with the nostalgic idea that at one point in time we did Christmas right. And now in our pluralistic society, it's ruined. Because when I go to the gas station, they say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. At one point, we did it right, and now it's ruined. There's some golden age where we got it right. Well, in contrast to this, the Advent stories remind us that there was never a time when we got Christmas right. We're always, from the very beginning, distracting ourselves with just about everything else besides for the Christ child. You know the story. You know the story of the first Christmas, right? Luke 2, beginning in verse 4, Gospel of Luke. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So you can imagine at the first Christmas, if any of them was going to get it right, it should have been that one. But you got round-bellied, teenage, pregnant Mary hunched over a donkey, going door to door, Joseph, with one hand knocking, with the other hand counting the time between the contractions, and no one has any space for them in a culture that prided itself on hospitality. There wasn't a single room in town for God to be born. 
Apparently, it's always been a challenge to keep Christ in Christmas. And one of the gifts of Advent is the simple truth that we need to prepare, prepare to receive Christ. Our inclination will always be to close the door to God. Why? Because God often arrives in unfamiliar and inconvenient ways, sometimes even in the belly of a teenage girl. So we intentionally pray and press into those words that we began the service with. Open my heart to you, O Lord. Not only do we need to open the door, but those of us who are good hosts know that the house needs to be prepared before the guests arrive. The office needs to be remade into a guest room, or the air mattress needs to get blown up, or we need to make sure we have the extra linens and towels and enough food to go around the table. We need to make space to prepare room for the guests. And that same theme of hospitality applies, of course, to our souls. It applies to our hearts, to the center of our being. And that's why we love that line, right, by Isaac Watts. Let every heart prepare him room. During Advent, we repent of the habits and practices that close the door to the loving God who is always reaching out to be reconciled to us. We need to make space in our lives to be with God, to hear from God, to respond to God in faithful obedience. We need to make margin for mystery. For Israel, uh, it had been something like 400 years without a word from God. 400 years of waiting. Generation upon generation upon generation upon generation of waiting in silence. Waiting for God to speak. Waiting for a Messiah. Waiting for deliverance from their Roman oppressors. Waiting for promises and prophecies to finally come about. 400 years of silence. And it's into that silence that the Advent story begins with this couple whose story is perhaps not even told most Christmases, Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke 1. If not, you just listen more intently. Begins in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Wow, these are good people. Righteous, blameless, obedient These two, they come from a good lineage, too, which is a way to talk about their purity. That's what Luke's getting at. He's like, these these people come from the lineage of Aaron and Abijah. They're good people. 
Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest and his wife was from the priestly lineage of Aaron. He tells us they were both righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Luke is letting us know that by any standard in the first century, these two are honorable people. If anyone deserved a good, comfortable life, it was Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're blameless, it says, in the Lord's sight. This is that elderly couple that you would love to adopt as honorary grandparents for you or for your kids. You want them in your life. And that's why the next verse, verse 7, would have been startling to the original readers. It says, But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. This would have been sort of like, what? Did I read the first few lines right? They're childless? Because deeply ingrained into the psyche here is this idea that God controls the womb. That's what the readers would have understood. That's what's embedded in the scriptures. God controls the womb with the result that children, they signify blessing and they're a source of honor in the community. On the other hand, childlessness was a sign of divine punishment and a source of shame. I'm not saying this is how things should be today. I'm saying how this is what it was then. And this dilemma is introduced early. Within the first seven verses of the Gospel of Luke, this dilemma is introduced. Why is this godly couple experiencing this loss? And so from the very beginning of the Advent story, from the Gospel story, we are reminded that life is often unfair and that even devout, obedient people harbor the tensions of unanswered prayer and bear the weight of unmet desires. The Christmas story about the birth of God begins with a story about the impossibility of birth. It starts with an elderly, barren woman. And you really, you have to remember that in those days, the very worth and purpose of a woman was tied to her ability to reproduce. Not saying it's how it should be, just saying it's how it was. It's hard for many of us to imagine the amount of shame that Elizabeth would carry with her throughout her life. It's hard to imagine the late night fights or conversations that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have. Why is this still not happening? We're blameless. What are we doing wrong? It's hard to imagine what this would do to their relationship, to their church, their synagogue community that's sitting there interceding for them as well. It's hard to imagine what this would do. And the text doesn't tell us. But by presenting them as blameless, Luke invites us into the narrative pathos of their pain, shame, and hopelessness. He invites us to feel the tension here. He says they're blameless and they don't have kids. What is going on? Now, I don't know about you, but when someone is suffering in a way that doesn't make sense to me, I often try to bring some meaning to it by finding someone to blame, right? And it's always easiest 
if I can blame it on the sufferer themselves. There must be some reason. You know, God's trying to teach them something, or they messed up here or there with this or that thing. Fault has to land somewhere. I want to explain the pain away. Well, he must have done something to deserve this. Maybe he was lazy or selfish or cruel. I do this, and maybe you do too. It's a common tactic that protects us from the emotional cost of empathy. And Luke simply won't allow that for his readers. He's letting you know they are blameless and they are suffering. You have to hold both at the same time. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And so one of the things Zechariah does is he sort of cosmically represents how all of Israel was supposed to wait for the Messiah. They're supposed to wait with ethical lives set apart by worship, prayer, and sacrifice. Because for their long lives, Zechariah and Elizabeth were like all of Israel. They were waiting and longing for a prophetic word from God about a Messiah. They were good Jews, and so they felt the weight of the 400 years of silence along with everyone else. So Zechariah goes to the temple to present prayers on behalf of the longing of Israel. I can imagine him joining with the psalmist with those words, How long, O Lord? How long until you answer? What's interesting about the priesthood in this time is it was large enough that most priests would only serve in the temple a few times a year. Okay, So you didn't have to go in every week. You'd go a few times a year, and they'd cast lots, which is kind of like throwing divine dice to see who gets to do what. And they cast lots, and Zechariah gets the very honorable role of incense burner. It might not sound that honorable or special, but the reason it's special is because he gets to go into the sanctuary. Everybody else stays outside. The altar of incense was located in the sanctuary itself. Okay? On one side was a, a curtained doorway that was leading to the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies the sort of locus or focus point of God's glory, his Shekinah dwelling glory. And that Holy of Holies could only be entered one day a year by one person, the high priest. So for all the other priests, this is like the best job you can get because you get to be right next to it. All the other priests didn't get to do that that day. Zechariah did. And anybody who's not a priest wouldn't even get to be halfway close to where Zechariah was. So here's what I want you to see. 
By getting the role of incense burner, it brings Zechariah as close to the presence of God as any person other than the high priest might ever come. Then, in the temple, in that holy place, that sacred space where heaven and earth overlap, God speaks. Prayer becomes the channel on which hope broadcasts. Verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. It says in verse 16, He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll turn hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. He will make ready a people. He'll prepare them for the Lord. Here's the thing. There was a lot of priests in that day and time. Zechariah could have stayed home. He could have said, Lord, I've waited my whole life for a Messiah. And my parents did, and their parents did, and their parents did, and their parents did, and and you're not saying anything. I'm going to stay home. He could have said, Lord, I'm old. My wife is old. We were waiting for a kid. You say you give kids to those you love, that they're blessings. You haven't shown up, God. So what good is burning incense to an insensitive God who doesn't listen to the cries of his people? But Zechariah shows up. Zechariah is where he should be. Even in his unmet prayers, he knows the best place to be is in the presence of God. There's an author, Anuma Okoro, And she points out this. She says, quote, The angel doesn't approach Zechariah while he drowns his sorrows with table wine or complains to his neighbors. Rather, Gabriel reveals himself while Zechariah is doing what he's supposed to be doing. Our responsibilities and commitments do not stop while we lament, hope, pray, and wait. Who knows how God will meet us when we least expect it in the very place we are meant to be? Unquote. And I want to say something. Have you ever heard that phrase, uh, empty rituals? A lot of uh, Protestants, a lot of evangelicals like to say this, uh, particularly about the Catholic Church. The problem is that it's full of these empty rituals, Wrote prayers that don't mean anything. Nobody really believes what they're saying. On and on. Here's the thing. A ritual is meant to be empty. All a ritual is, is just a defined way of opening up space for God to show up. It's empty so that the Spirit of God might fill it. 
It's empty space that we pray, hope, and trust that God will fill. What else are you going to fill it with? Zechariah was faithful to fulfill his ritual duties. And it was there, in the midst of the empty space, that God shows up in miraculous ways. I want you to hear this. If all you have sometimes is simply the faith to show up week after week, be encouraged. Because that may well be enough for God to change the course of human history. It was through Zechariah. Just keep making space. And God will do the rest. When the angel Gabriel shows up, he says that God has heard his prayer. What was the prayer that he heard? I wonder, was it a prayer for the Messiah? Was it a prayer for the long-awaited Messiah? Uh, Gabriel says, I heard it, and now I'm going to send the Messiah. Or was it a prayer for the child? Because that's that's what Gabriel ends up doing, is offering a child to Elizabeth. But I wonder, what was the prayer? I love that we don't know. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth aren't just this image of how a vast group of people, a nation, all of Israel, should collectively wait and pray for a Messiah. No, they have this very personal and intimate thing they are waiting and longing for. And Advent is about waiting, so of course... It starts with this couple. Don't miss this. God, in his glorious kindness, he uses this couple's very personal and intimate longing to bring about the answer to all of Israel's longing. God could have had any child become John the Baptist, the forerunner, the preparer for Christ. But he has this old, barren couple who were longing for a child become the parents. You see, God is able to address their deeply personal and intimate heart needs at the same time and in the same way that he addresses the entire world's needs of a Savior. God interweaves sort of cosmic salvation history with something so personal and intimate that this family needs. He answers their prayers with a child, and he says, name that child John. John, which simply means God is gracious. An angel shows up to Zechariah and says, God has heard your prayer, and he's going to answer it with a child. And that child's going to bring you joy and delight. And then verse 18. Zechariah then asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? Um, In case you haven't noticed, I'm an old man. And my wife is, he says, you know, instead of saying I have an old wife, he says she's well along in her years. She's advanced in her age. But in other words, he's saying, hey, angel, how in the world is this possible? In fact, angel of the Lord, 
I'm telling you, this is impossible. We can't have kids. Believe me, we've tried. Even the hopeful, faithful, who the scriptures call righteous and blameless, Zechariah, can't comprehend this level of hopefulness. Even from the lips of an angel, it's too good to be true. If you've ever doubted that God would actually answer your prayers or your longings, you're not alone. Faithful, obedient, blameless Zechariah doubted also. And oftentimes, doubt and lament and despair are valid. But sometimes, when we've wanted something for so long and it hasn't come to pass, we become accustomed to life without it. They knew they wanted a kid, but they'd become very accustomed to life without it. They became familiar, intimately acquainted with a life of longing. Sometimes when you want something so bad, that becomes a part of your identity. It's like, I just want that thing. Where if God was to actually answer it, you'd feel like, well, what happened to my identity? It's like a lot of times when uh, couples are engaged, the majority of their life becomes about planning this wedding. And then when they actually get married, they're like, well, what do we do now? This is kind of boring. <laughs> we don't have a big event to plan. And it can be that way with, with longing and desire. God might actually want to answer it, but you're like, I don't know. Who will I be if I actually have the thing I want? Or <clears throat> we reason. You know, If we don't get our hopes too high, then we won't have to worry about getting disappointed. And so we try to safeguard ourselves from the possibility of being hurt by learning not to anticipate much. We do this not only with God, but in our relationships with one another. And the problem with living this way is that such a posture becomes where we are most comfortable. We're comfortable essentially being hopeless. So when a new, life-giving word comes from God... We question it and struggle with it. We can't accept it. There's no room. There's no room for hope to be birthed. So even when God is right in front of us, saying he needs a room to birth something new, we close the door to the possibility of God's inbreaking. Sorry, God. The timing's a little bit inconvenient, my in-laws are currently in the guest room. Uh, sorry, but do come back another time. Then the angel said to him, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I'm stunned that this is the angel's response. He doesn't uh, reason with Zechariah and say, 
you know, well, here's how it's going to happen. Uh, you know, biologically, you thought this, but this, this, or this, or I'm going to give, you know, Elizabeth this infertility treatment, and that's going to deal with it. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't seem to sort of yell and get angry, but he just says, here's the response for you, Zechariah. Silence. And often when I would read this story, I thought that Gabriel's response was like a punishment to Zechariah for his lack of faith. As if Gabriel is saying, how dare you doubt me? I'm going to shut you up until you see that this thing's actually going to happen. But what if silence isn't at least totally punishment, but at least in part a gift, a blessing? What if the silence was a way for Zechariah to make room, to open space in his life for the promise of God to be birthed? What if the silence made it possible for Zechariah to really hear, to really hear this new life-giving word of God? Here's ten months for you to sit with the news, Zechariah, to ponder God's word, to have the necessary internal solitude to dwell in God's stupefyingly marvelous faithfulness. That doesn't sound like a punishment to me. For some of you extroverts, it might. Ten months of silence might sound like punishment, but it doesn't need to be. Oftentimes, the place for hope's gestation, for things to grow and be born, is in hidden silence in the womb. Not silence from the voice of God, but silence from our own attempts to optimistically dictate some future that we would like. And not hiddenness from the presence of God, but hiddenness from the world's prescription to the problem, which is often to busy ourselves to death or to consume enough that we can numb out from feeling anything unpleasurable from trying to talk ourselves into some solution that God has other plans for. See, all of Israel was feeling 400 years of barrenness, waiting for God to birth something new. Look, I know that a lot of us might be feeling that same way. Maybe it hasn't been quite 400 years, but we're wondering, when's the new thing coming? I mean, maybe, maybe literally, maybe there are people struggling with Infertility, and I don't take that lightly. But for, for symbolically or metaphorically something new as well, you're feeling like, how long, oh Lord? And maybe God has a word for you that it's coming. Will you lean into the waiting? Will you lean into the silence where the new thing will be born? That's the invitation this year for all of us, is to make room in our lives, to make margin for mystery. And silence is one way to do that. It's one very unpopular way (laughs) to do that. You know, practically speaking, how can you embrace silence this Advent season? 
How can you make margin to hear from God? Well, first off, you'll need time to be silent. That will probably mean saying no to something or many things. Please, this is my pastoral plea to you. Don't let December go by stuffed with to-do lists and get-togethers and events that fill your calendar simply because they exist. It may feel like there are things you just can't say no to. It's just what we do. It's what we do every year. We see these people. We see this family, this, that, and that. You have agency. You can say no. Practice it. Practice saying no with little things first. Clear room for Christ. Maybe you simply want to set a period of time in your day where you're not going to speak. Maybe you're going to set 10 minutes a day. Okay, I'm just not going to speak for 10 minutes. For some of you, that'll be extremely easy. For others, (laughs) that'll be very hard, 10 minutes. Maybe during Advent for you, you know what? During my commute, when I'm driving, or when I'm exercising, no podcasts, Uh, No Spotify, no music. I'll just be silent in those moments. That's all I can handle. That's okay. How can you say no to noise? Maybe you'll decide, you know what? I'm not going to watch TV in December. I'm going to try and do that. I don't know if I'll succeed. I'm going to try. Maybe you're like, you know what? I even want to go on a little personal retreat in silence with God. I want to spend five hours on a Saturday and get away. That may seem impossible with your current schedule. But for those who want to do that, do that. Like Zechariah, God may use your silence to birth hope. Hope that simply didn't have space to exist before. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth don't give birth to a savior. Their son is John the Baptist, and he's not the Messiah. The story as we begin Advent isn't even about birthing salvation yet. It's about simply birthing hope. Just enough space for some hope. Can we make space for that even as we begin? It's simply a birth that says another birth is coming. It's a prophecy about a prophet. It's a story of rejoicing, but rejoicing and waiting. Jesus, of course, is the promised Messiah that they're ultimately waiting for. And today, the angel foretells about John, and then John foretells about Jesus. All of this waiting, 400 years then this angel to Zechariah, then 10 months of silence, then uh, the birth of John, and then finally the birth of Jesus, and then 30 years of life. All of that for three years of Jesus' ministry. Of healing, of preaching, of eating with. That's it. That's the Messiah in our midst. And then the cross. All of this waiting for hope, only for it to be dashed to pieces on a wooden cross. Oh my gosh. 400 years of silence and waiting for what? 
for a humiliating death on a Roman cross? But no, like the angel Gabriel showing up to Zechariah, there's another gloriously surprising, hope-inducing, in-breaking of God into possibility. After three days of silence comes a word. Resurrection. Friends, in Christ, there is enough hope to fill all moments of silence. During this season, remember that in Christ, you are rooted deep in the soil of the God of resurrection. And remember that the Holy Spirit is always birthing, bringing something new until the day we wait no more. Amen.